This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products. The show is also brought to you by Element, L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure, the first clinically tested urolithin A supplement, which is showing tremendous results for mitochondrial health. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Welcome to episode 147 of the Super Age Podcast. It is wonderful to have you with us. This will be dropping on August the 16th, 2023. This week, we are in Park City, Utah, which is pro tip. The summers in Park City are incredible. <laughs> Everybody comes here for the snow and for skiing, and that's really great. But the summers are kind of the bomb. <laughs> All the locals know that. It was sort of a surprise when we first moved here how amazing the summers here are. But it's true. So we're just here until Friday morning when we go to Hawaii. Woohoo! And we're going to Oahu, and we're staying with the folks at the Halikolani, which is an amazing, amazing hotel. And I, I had this sort of like incredible opportunity. They invited me last spring to come for next week to be their visiting master in residence. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, do I get a name tag that says like master on it or something? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. So we're going to be there. We're going to be talking about super aging and specifically sleep because I thought, what am I going to talk about at the Holly Kalani? They've got a lot of the stuff that we talk about here really well dialed in. But the thing is, anyone who is in Hawaii who's not a local is jet lagged because Honolulu is just this sort of odd place in the middle of the Pacific. It's this major Asian city that happens to be part of America that's like in the middle of the Pacific. And I just love it. It's just one of my favorite places because it's such a mix-up of surfers and tourists shopping at Louis Vuitton and, and then the locals and it's the whole native Hawaiian culture and Get this. I mean, people talk about like blue zones and all that stuff, which I, <laughs> I truthfully have some issues with. The U.S. state with the longest longevity is Hawaii. You know, Hawaiians are really not known for their particularly good diet. They're really into roast pig. And yes, they, they, there is a lot of spam there. But what is remarkable about Hawaiians and being in Hawaii is that everything is just kind of chill. The stress level there, it's just lower. People don't worry about stuff too much. So if you want to go to the state with the longest longevity, Hawaii would be it. This week on the show, we have Dr. Carolyn Chang, who's a well-known plastic surgeon in San Francisco. Now, the reason we're having Dr. Chang on is because I think that of all the things we talk about, 
aesthetics, aesthetic improvement, it's just fraught with controversy. I don't really have an opinion either way on this. I get confused about it too. So (laughs) that's what I want to say about this. And I think maybe my confusion about it is bad plastic surgery. It just sort of creeps me out. But who am I to say what's bad and what's good? Um, Because these are aesthetic judgments, and I think that they are, to a large extent, cultural. I think people should do what makes them happy. And I sort of wonder, aesthetics are on a continuum, right? There's from, you know, I'm doing zero to, okay, you're going to like clean up your teeth or you're going to wear lipstick or maybe you're going to do something, you're going to laser procedure on your skin and then you go into more surgical procedures and then really extreme surgical procedures. And I think all of this stuff is, it's really hard for us to get our minds around why people do this, why some people don't like other people doing it, the downsides, the sort of social downsides to doing it, because sometimes people are judged very harshly for this. But on the other hand, some people get judged harshly for for, for other things. It's something that I, I love having these conversations because it, it helps me sort of figure out how to untie this, which I think is, as I've said, it's, it's complicated. It's, it involves sense of mortality. It involves sort of a religious Calvinist thing. And, you know, you can see in different cultures, it's really looked at quite differently. And, you know, someplace like South Korea, that's, it's, you know, not just accepted. It's sort of like the, the norm in Brazil, also very much so. In other places, less so. It's really frowned upon. And then there's the, you know, the idea of if you want a procedure, why do you want the procedure? What do you think the outcome of the procedure will be? And how do you choose someone to do something like this? Because it's, you know, it is surgery. It's not something you want to take lightly. I do recall a quote from the, the wonderful photographer Peter Lindbergh talking about the terror of perfection and this drive for constant youthful perfection and how terrible that is. And I think there's, there's something to that too, driving for trying to keep yourself at some level of perfection. Whew, boy, that's, that's like really hard. I appreciate things that are done well. I mentioned earlier I did Invisalign earlier this year, which is sort of in the same camp, sort of a very light version of aesthetic improvement. And I love it. I was always really shy about smiling because my bottom teeth were just kind of gnarly and they just kind of embarrassed me. But once I had my Invisalign done, like I just smile all the time. I love my smile. I see my smile in pictures and I think, oh my gosh, I have such a great smile. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to have this conversation and we're going to see how we can get Dr. Chang's opinion on this. I know she has a lot of experience with this. She's really smart and really fun. And I, th- I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We're going to get with her in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Hydration is not just about pounding water. We have to have some electrolytes in there, specifically sodium, potassium, and magnesium. My favorite electrolyte mix, the one that I use every day, is Element, L-M-N-T. You know, one of the things that I learned last year was the importance of sodium. We may actually not be getting enough sodium. And I know there was a lot of sodium fear out there. And it's true. If you have hypertension or are pre-hypertensive, you do want to check with your doctor. But for most of us, 
having sodium actually helps us to absorb water. And in fact, drinking straight water without any minerals in it, we will be pulling the electrolytes out of our system. Go to drinkelement.com slash ages. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash ages. Get a free eight-serving sample pack with your next order. My favorite one is citrus salt. Um, what's yours? Let me know. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested, highly pure urolithin A postbiotic. There have been over 300 published scientific studies on urolithin A, including human-completed and ongoing clinical trials involving over 900 participants. The results are impressive. By energizing cells, MitoPure is revolutionizing cellular aging. Urolithin A is the only known substance clinically proven to trigger a crucial recycling process within our cells called mitophagy. I've been using MitoPure for several months. The members of our scientific board and their families use it, and many of our friends use it because we have read the science and we can feel the difference. This is a product I'm going to be taking for as long as I possibly can. Receive 10% off your first purchase at TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist. Use the code Ageist at checkout. And I want to remind everyone to stay tuned after my conversation with the lovely Dr. Caroline Chang. And we're going to do just try this, that little tip at the end of the show. We'll see you then. Let's give Dr. Chang a call right now. Hey, Dr. Chang, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a topic of endless fascination and controversy, and I'm hoping that you can help us out with this because I, I think that this is a button like no other for people, and you can help us understand why. I think before we get to that, I, I want to ask you, why are you a plastic surgeon? Why am I a plastic surgeon? That is, I've never been asked it quite that way, and I love it because it, it's deeper than why did you become a plastic surgeon? I grew up in a scientific community. Uh, I'm a child of immigrants. And so, you know, you were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or, you know, maybe not even a lawyer, you're just going to be a doctor pretty much. And so if I wasn't going to have a PhD, I was going to have an MD. And so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. Everyone around me had PhDs. And it was an interesting thing. And so I grew up thinking that you had to do science. And that was in Tennessee, believe it or not. And then when I came to college, uh, I ended up on the West Coast in Palo Alto at Stanford. And it was like a culture shock. And when I started college, you know, I naturally thought, okay, well, you know, uh, what am I going to do in science? You know, meanwhile, everybody else was doing economics and, you know, political science and all these things. And so I broadened my thought a little bit into, okay, maybe I won't do bench research. I'll do something that's more hands-on with people, something that's more social. And I gravitate towards that. So I always knew uh, just because of my background, probably, um, that I would do something in medicine from an early age because I ruled out the basic science thing. And then as I got into it, thank goodness I enjoyed it. And thank goodness I excelled in it. And then I ended up at medical school. And that was still at Stanford. And then when you do that, you kind of think, okay, well, uh, am I going to go into internal medicine or am I going to go into to surgery? And they actually asked you to sort of choose that at the beginning. Because in medical school, in your first few years, you're only in the classroom. And so they're going to pair you with a mentor. And you decide the mentor based on what kind of field you want to go into, internal medicine or surgery. And so I picked surgery. And then they assigned me to a woman plastic surgeon. 
And she was the only plastic surgeon that's female on staff at the time. And she brought me into the operating room really early on and she did breast reconstruction. She did a lot of breast reconstruction. And my first experience was that she taught me how to look like a surgeon. She taught me how to sew. Um, I was embraced by the team. And so, you know, I was hooked. So that's how it happened. Tell me about your experience with your work. What do you get out of doing the work that you do? How do you feel from doing the work that you do? Well, there's a lot of me that's very superficial. I like good looking things. Okay. That's natural. Uh, That's always been for me. You know, when I was young, Barbie is a big deal right now, right? I never played with Barbies. I played with Don dolls. That dates me, but I played with Don dolls and Don dolls things were fashion. Right. Barbie did think she was an astronaut. She was, a, you know, a, a doctor. She uh, had her own car and all that stuff that we're, uh, you know, revisiting these days in the movies. But Don dolls were just about clothing and how they looked. And I, and I really liked that. I liked changing the outfits and the aesthetics of it and the shoes matched and it was just perfect. And so I've always gravitated towards that. And so what I really enjoy in plastic surgery is the immediacy of the outcome. And the joy that it gives people, it's a pretty simple thing. If you feel good about yourself, then you've, you know, life changes. And that's what plastic surgery gives people. It gives people confidence because of the way they look. And that's shallow in one way, but it also is not in another because there are certain things that can actually be quite debilitating for people and that we can fix with plastic surgery. But at the end of the day, it's about aesthetics and also function. So I, at the age of 64, I had crooked teeth my whole life because my family couldn't afford to give me braces. And I just decided I'm tired of looking at my crooked teeth because I'm on camera all the time. And I did Invisalign and I love the way my teeth look. Like I smile all the time now and I, and I, and I didn't before. No one seems to have a problem with that. Like everybody's okay with that. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> plastic surgery seems to be in sort of a different, basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Why is it so different? Well, I think it's the idea that you're spending money to make yourself look different than you used to in search of something that is often thought of as, as frivolous and vain. Now, I think that some people could say Invisalign would fit in that. But I think maybe because so many more people get orthodontia as the children, you know, they don't really think about it quite the same way, but it is the same. And you, you can see how, you know, how good it made you feel. And so, you know, that's, that's what's going on with plastic surgery. I think on the one hand, it makes people feel good, but then on the other hand, people feel guilty doing it. We live in a culture where, you know, for better or worse, beauty has value. So what's the contrast there? There seems to be this sort of moral issue about plastic surgery that I, that I don't fully understand. We uh, live in a society that values doing good for others, and it should. Uh, it values um, being frugal and practical. The Puritans are the ones that were some of the original settlers in the United States, um, as we know it today. And I think we have a lot of those same values now still carried on in our culture from our history. And the way we're brought up. Um, And I think that plastic surgery in a lot of ways goes against that value because now instead of being low key and doing good for others, you're doing something purely for yourself. 
And not only is it only for yourself, but it's about appearance. And so it's vanity. And vanity is a four-letter word, so to speak, uh, in the puritanical culture. So I think that's probably the dichotomy. Now, I do like to say, and this is also because I, I, not just because I'm a plastic surgeon, but because I do believe it, that I think that the way you look goes far deeper than the way you look. Um, Patients that I have are normal people. They're your neighbors. They're your brothers. They're your sisters. And they really just want to fix something that bugs them. And a lot of times it's something that is not, um, the result is not something that's necessarily beautiful. It's more functional, like a breast reduction. But what it does is it improves their life in such a way, both in the way they look, but also functionally, that it gives them so much more confidence and so much more ability to enjoy life um, that it's really far more than vanity. Um, Self-confidence and feeling good about yourself, I think, is really what plastic surgery is about. Not necessarily all looks. Suppose I went out and I bought a fancy car. Okay. Yeah, I might get a little bit of grief about that, but mostly people are going to say, wow, that's a great car. Whereas plastic surgery, it's a little more mixed, right? I would say so. Um, you know, one of the, the things that can happen to patients in their post-operative period, you know how they say you find out who your real friends are, right? It happens with plastic surgery, believe it or not. It's really? Actually, oh, tell me about it, this. It's actually not a great thing, but it, it's a true phenomenon. So I remember when I was training, I trained with a very famous uh, surgeon uh, who developed a lot of the ways that we do facelifts today, all of the basic anatomy and the principles. And um, he was a real groundbreaker in the field. And, and uh, I would have these patients. So I was a fellow with him. And I would have these patients that would come in and say, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z, my aunt is so mad at me. She doesn't like this at all. She's so negative. She thinks I look terrible. Right. And I would be like, what are you talking about? You look great. And they would be so disparaging and so um, condes- you know, just horrified by it that the patient would feel really bad. And it would make the recovery really difficult emotionally mm. and mentally. Mm. And I told my mentor this, and I said, why is it that people do this? Because, you know, I didn't really have, I, you know, if someone wants to do something, I'm not going to make them feel bad about it. It's not, you know, it's not my job to do that, uh, to pass judgment on someone else. That's how I am. And he said to me, he goes, because they're jealous. And I said to him, I said, jealous? They're not jealous. Why would you be jealous? It's plastic surgery. But as I got more into the field and actually had my own patients, I began to see what he meant by jealous. It wasn't jealous in the green-eyed monster way. It was jealous in the way that they felt like they were not being not going to be able to keep up somehow. So they were being held, you know, someone was doing something to quote unquote better themselves. And this particular individual couldn't do it for a lot of reasons. You know, maybe they didn't have the money to do it. They were too afraid to do it. Uh, they were too afraid of surgery. They, you know, just couldn't. And, and it was, and so because they weren't able to have the same experience and have the same outcome, they felt somehow threatened. And that's really overreaching a lot. You know, it's generalizing a lot of this, but there is a lot of that kind of sen- sentiment that can happen around this topic. And it's really amazing all the different emotions and um, reactions that people will get, uh, even within themselves, to plastic surgery. 
it is a very psychological and emotionally charged field. And I think that's why people are endlessly fascinated with it. Maybe just tell people, what is plastic surgery? Well, you know, the first couple of words in our basic textbook back in the day was plastic surgery comes from the, I think it was Greek word plastikos, meaning to mold and to change. So plastic surgery is not about plastic. It's about changing things into um, something that is more functional or more aesthetically. So in the field of cosmetic surgery, functional means, um, or is is an acronym for looking better. But real plastic surgery, you know, when we train is all about function. So it's about, for instance, uh, if someone has a trauma and loses their hand, then we put it back back on. That's pure plastic surgery. If someone has a big skin cancer on their face and a big hole, then we arrange the rest of the, we rearrange the rest of the face to make that to cover it. That's functional, mm. Mm. and so that's really what plastic surgery is. And cosmetic surgery or cosmetic or aesthetic surgery, I guess, it's just a small part of plastic surgery, and that is to improve the appearance. Um, you know, so to make the skin look better, I guess. You mentioned you studied with someone who's very well known and, and you know um, with facelifts and and. I would think, how do you choose, because there, there are certain consequences if someone makes a mistake, you know, maybe they're not as good a plastic surgeon. How does one determine that? Like, who do, who's your doctor? How do, you, how do you pick a doctor? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a hard question, and it's individual. So there's the obvious things, you know, that if you look at lists of what to ask your doctor, you know, you want to be board certified, you want to actually be a doctor, you want to actually be trained, um, you want to actually know what you're doing i.e. have some experience in the field. So one of the important things is that you go to someone who actually does do that procedure. You know, plastic surgery is a huge field. And so you could have rhinoplasty specialists that don't really do breast surgery. Uh, You could have general plastic surgeons that do only reconstruction or only breast reconstruction, and they don't really do cosmetic facelifts, let's say. So you want to be sure that the person not only is has the basic credentials, but has specialized experience in, in the area that you're interested in. And that comes from word of mouth. Uh, It comes from some of the best uh, ways to find uh, excellent doctors in your field is to ask other doctors, I think, Mm. and people in the operating room, Mm. because they look past all the marketing and all the websites because they actually see the product and see what the people are doing day to day. So that's probably the most valuable way. Um, But in general, you want to be sure someone's experienced in what it is that you want to do. You want to be sure that you can communicate with that person. Um, that you like the office. So a lot of the experience that people have um, is colored by the experience they have with the physician and how well they take they feel taken care of by the office. And so um, that does make a difference. It's like you if you go to a hotel, you know it makes a difference. Your experience mm-hmm. does, not just the the actual you know, room itself. So that's part of it too. And then you want to see that you have the same, aesthetic viewpoint as that physician that you're choosing. So particularly in the field of aesthetic surgery, you want to really look at before after photos and you want to look at a lot of them. So not just from that doctor, but from other doctors, and then you'll be able to see some differences and you'll be able to see which aesthetics that you actually like and which you don't. And you want to be sure that that doctor is going to be able to provide that to you. And the only way you can tell that really is with pictures. So every doctor in the world says, I, I do a natural look. No one's going to say you're going to look unnatural or you're going to look you know, alien. No one says that. But if you look at the photos, you'll see some of them should say that. 
And so you really just need to look, look and interview a lot of people, talk to doctors, talk to other people who've done it, mm. that sort of thing. I actually know a lot of, for some reason, a lot of anesthesiologists. And Perfect. They're the, they're the ones that will give you the they inside give you the dope. Story. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I ask you some questions about some of the possible procedures that you do? Love to answer it. Okay. So as people get older, you know, we have like kind of puffy under the eyes. I don't even know why. You can tell me why. And then what do you do about that? Is that a difficult thing? Is it a dangerous thing to fix? Well, it's not dangerous at all if you're the right candidate. So that's hmm. that's part of it. But assuming you are, the most common reason for puffiness under the eyes is, or we call bagging, is because as we get older, the fat that's naturally surrounding the globe, so there's a, a bit of fat that goes uh, that's around the eyeball, it cushions the eyeball from the, the body socket, that fat herniates out a little bit. So just like all the other tissues start to sag, that little septum that holds back that fat starts to sag and it starts mm. to push out onto the surface of the skin and you see the bags. And then simultaneous to that, the skin overlying the eye actually thins with time and the cheek falls. And so it's unmasking that whole area. And so it, it almost looks in some people like you've got a hollow plus a bag. And that's why it's just from aging loss of elasticity and uh, loss of volume. See, I went to you, like I've got sort of bags. I don't, they don't really bother me. But if I went in and I said like, Dr. Chang, these are making me crazy. What's the recovery process? Which is always what I'm concerned with. Like how long am I, am I going to be out? Right. So usually, so, so the surgery itself is called a blepharoplasty. And that's more commonly known as an eyelid lift. And we would be specifically talking about the lower lid. So it's a lower eyelid lift or lower blepharoplasty. And the, the, what we do during that surgery, it's a, it's a small surgery because it's a small structure, um, but it's an important structure. So you have to do it carefully. But basically what we do is we will open up the eye in, in either an external incision or one on the inside of the eye, and we'll take the fat out. And we might take a little bit of skin out as well and tighten the lid. And in doing so, you're going to have a little less wrinkly skin and a little bit um, less bagging because you've taken out some of that herniated fat. So it should be a look a little bit flatter. Um, there's then, other things that you can do like laser resurfacing to tighten the skin further. You, some people will do some fat grafting to give you some of that volume that we talked about that's missing mm. back. Um, and that whole surgery usually only takes a short amount of time, you know, less than a few hours. Uh, and recovery is usually pretty quick if it's problem free. So you would expect to be pretty well on your way in about a week and a half. It, results will get better and better with time. The lid will tighten, the swelling will go away. And by six weeks, you should be feeling pretty much picture ready or event ready or, you know, feeling feeling like the surgery's past you. So something that I, I know there have been some mishaps with recently, not necessarily your field, but like cool sculpting, mm -hmm. which seems like, I mean, there are people like, I think in like Medi spas do it and Yikes. What are your thoughts on that? So cool sculpting is a, is a there's a several machines that do the same thing. It's, it's a topic. It's called cryolipolysis. Hmm. And I think Lynn Evangelista recently was the most high profile person that came out. Yeah. And I think that was maybe a year or two ago. And that was hmm. pretty horrific what she was saying. Um, so what happens is with the cryolipolysis is you have a machine that literally freezes a portion of your skin and fat. And then by doing that, the fat then sort of breaks away, disintegrates and then it gets absorbed by the body. 
And for the most part, people do just fine with it. It has uh, low problems. It may not be super effective like liposuction is, but it generally can can do something for you um, if you're uh, in the right area. But one of the things that we were seeing, and this has been going on since the beginning of the, of the field, um, it was uh, PAH or paradoxical adipose hypoplasia. So what was happening, and I remember seeing this when, when uh, Colescope first started, people would come back with, instead of smaller areas, they would grow fat in, in places. And I think that's what Linda Evangelista was talking about. And so that is something that the only treatment for that really is to do liposuction again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to do with the energy settings, I think. I think there was a lot more of it before when the, and then they, the company um, reconfigured some of the settings and things and, and it's gotten better. But, but every, you know, the take home message is that every modality, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, I should say. Every modality has pros and cons. One of the readers wrote in and wanted to know, is 70 too old to have a successful tummy tuck? 70 is definitely not too old, but there are concerns. So a tummy tuck is, on the scale of plastic surgery, one of the more painful and difficult things to recover from. Mm. And that's because we're making a pretty large incision. We're taking a pretty large amount of skin and fat out, and we're tightening the abdominal musculature. And that's the part that really hurts a little bit. Mm. Uh, And you have to do that in order to get the best result that you can. And so uh, it also can commonly have drainage. And just a little bit, you know, it's a little longer recovery, like two weeks. It's a bigger body surface area. So people can have a little bit more hard time with that. Um, But 70 is not too old if you're healthy. There are things that you can do to really mitigate the pain um, and, and, you know, hopefully prevent a lot of the problems on the front end. One of the things that I've been doing is a transabdominus planar block or a tap block, which the anesthesiologists in my practice will commonly do for things like general surgery even. And I do that during surgery while the belly's open with an ultrasound and I can deposit some local anesthetic in the area where there are nerves in the abdominal wall. It's been a game changer. So there's, I've been in practice for over 20 years. There's a handful of things that have really improved my practice. That's one of them. So that really takes the edge off the pain the first night, which then massively decreases the potential for complications on the back end and makes the experience way more pleasant. But there are other things we can do. You can do a little bit less surgery, like a little less tightening. You could do a skin only, you know, just to get some of the bulk off. So, I mean, there's definitely ways to get someone who's a little older through a difficult surgery. The other thing that a lot of people are sensitive about is the neck, the sort of like turkey neck sagging jowl thing. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, the neck, you know, you don't want to be Nora Ephron, right? You don't want to go through life saying, I hate my neck. So, so you can absolutely do something about your neck. If you're healthy, you know, once again, you have, this is elective surgery. So you don't want to be, you know, your health comes first, but the surgery that we typically do for that, if all of the non-invasive things don't work, people usually go to surgery. And what that does is it removes the extra skin and the fat, and it repositions the muscular layers under the skin to a more youthful contour. And in doing so, you're uh, tightening the neck. So I commonly will call that a lower face and neck lift. It's difficult to do just a neck lift because the neck is all in continuity with the jowl or the jawline. And so usually you need to lift both the lower face and the neck together in order to get the best result. And someone told me that as as we age, one of the things that happens is the, the amount of bone material we have in our face 
decreases, which causes not only do we have this like gravity issue, but there's like less bone there. Is that is that true? Well, you do get a little bit of bone neuroabsorption, just like you get some osteoporosis. All of that does happen. And then you also lose spatial fat too. So everything just seems mm. to sink a little bit and go downward. So that's, you know, the lot that happens uh, or that's what happens when you get older. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot that's been a really hot topic and uh, it's, let's just say it's an Instagram sensation is the lip lift which I actually love. I think it's a really pretty surgery um, for the most part, for most people. But what happens is you get a little bony reabsorption uh, in the upper part of the jaw and then the lip starts to fall and look a little bit longer over time. And so, no, the phenomenon is real. So it does happen. And some of the fillers that we do uh, can help to mitigate some of this volume loss, both from the soft tissue and from the bone. Ah. So yeah, it does happen. What's your feeling about fillers versus surgery? I think there is a use. So if you look at them in isolation, uh, they are totally different fields uh, and they have different um, indications. So typically, if you're only doing something that's non-invasive, the way you can kind of think about it is that small procedures give you small results. And that's pretty much true across the board for almost anything that we do. So really, the fillers and the non-invasive things are going to make a bigger difference when you're younger and have less to fix. When you get older and you have actually a lot of skin and real contour problems, then surgery is really going to be the only way to go. But the more modern way to think about all of this is not the two things in isolation. It's the two things synergistic. Because Mm. what you can do with surgery is you can bring the face back to an earlier anatomic state, but you sometimes can't bring back all the volume Mm. that you've lost. Um, or you can't uh, make the skin texture as good as it was once before. And so some of the fillers uh, can really help augment those problem areas that you can't fix with surgery alone. And it can really be the difference between, you know, a great, you know, a great, a good result and a great result. So the two, I think these days as practitioners, we like to look at them as synergistic and not uh, exclusionary. Let's talk about breast implants. The two kinds that I'm aware of are there's silicone and saline. There were a lot of, I heard anyway, problems about leaking silicone ones and bad things happening. And do do you feel that implants need to be replaced? Like, do they have a a lifespan and they need to be replaced? Are there cautions? Do you you have feelings about safety of saline versus silicone? So that's a really big topic, but I have some pretty distinct feelings. I think my feelings are probably pretty mainstream in the plastic surgery uh, set. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, silicone implants have been the source of a lot of agitation, you know, a lot of investigation, a lot of spotlight. So the FDA, uh, probably in the last five years or so, completed a, a huge study Um, And they had uh, all kinds of results and um, conclusions. And the final conclusion is, yes, silicone implants are safe, even Mm -hmm. though they were taken off the market ages ago and put back on and this and that and the other. And they also had uh, a lot of um, warning uh, information or informational um, paperwork that is actually mandated to be given to patients before they have breast implants by all of the implant companies. So we actually have a whole special set of informative paperwork that we give patients uh, that's mandated by the FDA. And all of that, I think, is extremely responsible because breast implants, although I think are very safe, I think 
time and time and time again, it's been proven that they do have problems and they do have upkeep. And so wait, you know, wait, wait, they have upkeep. Yes. Help me out. I, I this is this breast implant maintenance. Yes, absolutely. That's the biggest problem with them. I what, think. Tell me exactly. What does that look like? I don't understand. Okay. So what it is, is it's different than a surgery where you're just rearranging your own skin. Okay. Because that's all your own body parts. So like a liposuction, assuming you don't gain weight, you never have to do it again. That's it. It doesn't wear out. The tummy tuck doesn't wear out, you know, at my age, but it doesn't wear out. Whereas a breast implant is a prosthetic device that you're putting into the body. And that prosthetic device can wear out. Now, if a breast implant, let's say ruptures, which is a failure of the implant, it's not like if a car tire blows out, you know, it's not as dangerous immediately like that, but you do have to take care of it. And so, you know, even if you don't get to rupture, you might get to impending rupture, or you might have um, uh, what we call capsular contracture, which can develop with time as well, which is uh, abnormal scar tissue that forms around the implant, distorting uh, the implant, and could cause pain. Um, and so there's a lot of things that can happen with implants, and also they can just not look as good over time. So there are a lot of reasons why people need to constantly monitor implants um, as they have them. And that's one of the biggest um, changes in the implant culture from a physician standpoint, uh, even since I've been in practice, because it used to be that we just put them in and nobody talked about it. But now every patient that gets implants understands all of the risks and benefits of the breast implants. And they understand that they're making commitment to the implants, to being responsible and taking care of them responsibly and taking care of problems if they occur. You've used the word taking care of and maintenance. And Mm-hmm. Is that something that a woman would, you know, every few months come and see you or do some kind of self-exam or something? What, so what does the, it look like? The self-exam or the the maintenance or the monitoring, I think, is where we would start. Because, okay. you know, when the implants are young, new implants, you're going to just monitor them. So you need to get uh, the FDA um, recommendations is that once you have the implants, you get a baseline mem- uh, MRI at around three years after, and then every other year thereafter to detect, to try and look for what we call silent ruptures, meaning ruptures mm. that happen, then you don't know it. Mm. Um, you also need to obviously get your mammograms and do regular breast health, and that can pick up implant problems as well. And you need to feel them yourself. So you need to do what we call self-massage. So self-massage on the one hand can help keep the implants soft, but on the other, I think even more important hand, it will tell you when implants have changed. So if you know what your implants feel like, then you know when there's a change and you can have a heightened sense of um, urgency for investigating them and just making sure that you're not missing something. It, is this so the that's same? What, with... That's what, and then, it, and then if there is a problem when you, when you said, what does maintenance look like? Well, then it usually means you have to have another surgery. Ah, uh, and is this the same with silicone and saline? Yes. The saline's a little easier to monitor for rupture because it'll just deflate. Ah. Uh. So it's more obvious. Quicker. And, and so say I come in and I see you and I have some sort of, okay, so here, maybe my, I want to pull, I want to get, I want to get the Brad Pitt. So Brad, whoever does Brad Pitt's face is amazing. Fantastic plastic surgeon. Yeah. So it's just, you know, he's just like pulled it back a little bit. Okay. That looks good. So say I come in and I say, Dr. Chang, like do the Brad Pitt on me. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
whatever that is. <laughs> I want the French pit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's he looks there's, amazing. I mean, I couldn't believe it. The French Open pictures are unbelievable. Yeah, whatever he's having done, it's, it's I don't know. I want it. It, yeah. it, it works, right? Uh, <laughs> so so I come in and I see we, we do a little work on my face. How does this age? So, you know, is something do I am I gonna expect negative either health consequences or aesthetic consequences 10 years down the road from making my face a little tighter? Okay, so this is one of my favorite topics. So thank you for asking this question. So people always say, uh, how long does this last? What happens, right? Yeah. So if you do in my, this is my opinion as to what I think is the correct way to do a lower face and neck lift or a facelift, is you want to take the tissues that have aged, i.e. they've sagged, uh, in general, what they've done is they've sagged down and forward. So you get that turkey neck, you get that hollowing around the cheeks, um, everything's gone down and forward. So you, what you want to do is you want to take those tissues and the underlying tissues that are responsible for that, for the look that you're getting, and you want to put them in reverse direction back where they started. So you want to put them in the anatomically correct position from where they started. And if you do that, now your face is theoretically at an earlier anatomic set point again, and you can't stop aging. So you go on to age from there. So if you do the lift and put the person back together the way they were, they are going to look normal for the rest of their life. I mean, you you have to look like yourself if it's back anatomically correctly placed. And so that is really the way I think that you keep people looking normal over time and looking really good over time. So I've been in practice for now over 20 years, and I've had the pleasure of having patients again for a second lift. So I can look at a pre-op photo from someone, let's say 13 years ago, and then I'll have a pre-op photo from, let's say now, before the surgery. And I can see that over 10 years, they may have had some uh, loss of volume or their skin might not be as nice. They might have more wrinkles, but the contour is very similar. So what happened was 10 years ago, they got a lot better right? And then they started to age a little bit over time because you got, you have to, but they never got worse contour wise than where they started. And so over that 10 years, that's what you call truly aging gracefully. You've kind of cheated that time. And that's because if you put everything back anatomically correctly for that patient, they're just going to look like themselves continually over time. Fascinating. That makes complete sense. So like I'm 64, you, you, Dial me back to 50 yeah. and then at- you end up 64 when you're 75. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the resistances that, and I'm not advocating people get plastic surgery. I just want to be clear about this. Like I'm just open to the whole field and people can do whatever they want to do. I'm, I'm fine with it. I don't have any positive, negative feelings on this. Certain people, if they think that this might be something they want to do, what are the sort of resistances that would keep someone from doing something and you know and and, and I, what i want to do is I, I don't want to frame this in terms of an age thing because that can get sort of complicated but it, say somebody they i don't know their nose is misshapen or something what what would prevent them i think personally that the number one if someone truly wants something and they don't do it i really think that If not, I mean, in the vast majority of people, I think the number one reason is fear. Mm. Fear of the unknown, fear of looking bad, fear of anesthesia, fear of dying, fear of 
um, uh, judgment, you know, uh, negative judgment from their family. That's a big one, actually. Uh, but mostly fear of dying and looking bad. Mm. That those are, I think, fear is by far the biggest contributor to hesitation to do surgery, even though you desperately want it. I have people that will come and see me every year for seven years and never do it. And it's just something that they just can't pull the trigger for various reasons. You know, there's also finances. Um, there's logistical problems. Like if you're really busy at work and you just can't take the time, if you travel all the time, if you're in front of people, you just can't take the work. And that's why we had the pandemic boom. Because all of a sudden, all these people that always want to do it were landlocked, weren't going on, you know, they were on Zoom. They could turn the Zoom camera off. They were at home. Nobody was seeing them. So you just had this, you know, in the middle of the biggest health crisis ever, I had people, person after person after person calling me to get a facelift. It blew my mind. But it makes sense now looking back on it. And I'm, do plastic surgeons get together and talk about like, um, oh, like Brad Pitt, he looks amazing. What what happened there? Or some other person who's had something done that you all think looks great. You guys get together with for beers after work and say like, wow, that was really great. They did the XYZ procedure. Like, does that go on? Um, well, I think it depends. I mean... You know, we're plastic surgeons and we're still human. So everybody right, right. gossip, right? So, <laughs> exactly. so I think we I could, I could honestly say, I mean, Brad Pitt was a huge topic for me in the operating room, actually. Really? And all of us independently saw those photos. And I think today, I actually, the Uber driver was talking about the other day. I mean, it's a, you know, talking about celebrities and what you see is a big topic and it's fun. Um, whether or not we get together as a group depends on who your friends are. So I'm lucky that I have several very good colleagues and we do talk about fun things like that. But yeah, I mean, we uh, talk all the time about problems that we might be having, uh, get advice on how to manage something. Sometimes I'll get a second opinion from someone if I think that would be the appropriate thing to do. So absolutely. Um, plastic surgery is fun at the end of the day. That's funny. I, I'm going to, t-shirt that says that <laughs> i get some real hate mail about that yeah um uh martha stewart who claims mm -hmm. to have never had plastic surgery really skillful injections or something else going on there well martha has really good genetics so that's one thing she was a model. Martha's charismatic and a lot of beauty is inner beauty and she has that star power. So yeah. that can erase a lot of flaws that people have and aging flaws. She takes great care of herself. I will say I have an Instagram feed where I know people who are personal friends of hers and I see her unfiltered photos and she still looks good. So has she had surgery? Probably. Can I prove it? No. Um, I don't know what to say. I think she's a great example of aging gracefully. I do think that the Sports Illustrated, I think she was in Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Those photos were probably touched up a little bit. I, yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but even so, she has the basic bone structure to carry it off. So kudos to her. And I, I think what's fascinating to me is, uh, like I used to I used to work in that world. I, I did a lot of magazine covers of a photographer for a while. And like, the thing is, Supermodels are not regular humans, no more than Olympians are like normal athletes. They're just, it's a different thing. You can't really compare yourself. And then you have an enormous amount of resources put into the photo shoot with all the glam squad who are like the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you have retouching on top of that. So like 
supermodels don't even look like supermodels by the time you get done with them. And what what's interesting to me is the the Martha Stewart thing. People were like, "Well, this is like terrible. Like she looks great, but she's clearly had all this work." And somehow that was a negative. I just find that it's so hard, right? So if she looked like hell, like you know, and she just like roll out of bed and like, okay, I'm gonna take my picture. Well, she would have gotten a lot of grief about that. And, you know, if she looks great for whatever reason, mm-hmm. she gets a lot of grief about that. And I just think, like, I mean, give her a break. <laughs> what do you want her to do? <laughs> well, I think that one thing that, you know, if you step back from the whole field as whether it's frivolous or not, um, because at the end of the day, we don't really need it to survive. Absolutely not. But I think that there's a, a large part of plastic surgery that treats the psyche and it treats the soul. It, it And the people that want to do it, generally speaking, are healthy in terms of mental, mentally healthy, and they just want to take care of themselves and mm. be the best selves that they can be. And that sounds cliche, but it really is true. And I sort of think that there is, you know, when you take the time to take care of yourself, whether or not it's putting on two shoes that match your purse and your, you know, your outfit and doing your hair, you're taking pride in yourself. Um, And when you take care of yourself and you take pride in yourself, it shows the world that you care about yourself and and you feel like you have self-worth. And I think in that way, it's more than just vanity. I think that it is being optimistic about life and wanting to be the best you can. And, you know, there are people in plastic surgery that get plastic surgery that are not mentally healthy, but they are by far and away the few. And the vast majority of people, like I said, are your neighbors. You just don't know it. And they are really, um, you know, they, they feel good about themselves for doing it. And they feel proud of themselves for doing it and taking, taking initiative to do something positive for themselves. So what do you say about the camp that says... Why can't we just accept aging naturally? Well, that camp probably looks good. They probably look like Martha Stewart. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I I'll, I always laugh when I see um, some actress or something say, I will never do plastic surgery, but she's 25, right? Preservation of the species. I mean, you see it in, even in on safari, you know, it's the survival of the fittest, the fittest and the the best genetics often are the flashiest um, tail feathers or the biggest, um, you know, the brawniest specimen. So there, there is a certain amount of um, that that goes on even in our society, the civilized world, where if you look good, you are thought of as, you know, more somehow virile. And, you know, so it's an innate thing that we want to do, I think. And it goes deeper than just um, you know, how, how your nose looks. And so, you know, I, I don't ever say to people that they shouldn't always do surgery. Absolutely not. I mean, I come from an Asian culture who doesn't want a scar to, you know, that'd be the last thing in the world you want is a scar and you would never change anything unnecessarily. And, and so, but I think that um, as a surgeon, you know, I see what it can do for people, but I also know that it's not for everyone. And sometimes patients will, or people will will say to me, oh, I can't believe she did that. And I'll be like, you know, my feeling is that it was her choice to do it. It may not be your choice, but it's not wrong either way. It's not for everybody. Um, But I think that as a culture, it would be nice to be able to sit back and look at it a little bit more holistically than just, I want to look prettier. Because it Mm. really does make people feel a lot better. And and it does um, make people feel a lot more confident. 
uh, and it does improve their lives in a significant way. I think Tom Ford is about my age, but he's like within a year of me. And he, um, I read a couple of years ago, Tom's a big fan of Botox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's another Brad Pitt though. He looks good. He never doesn't well, look good. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, Tom used to be a model. That's how he started. But he started putting pictures of Georgia O'Keefe around his house because he felt like, you know, his whole thing was like sexy 20 year olds and, and he's got to get away from that. So he started, he wanted to sort of review, redo his view of the world by putting these, you know, the Georgia O'Keefe photos up. And I don't see that Tom is suddenly not attracted to beauty. It's just an interesting thing. I think mm -hmm. this, this idea of the, the, you know, taking it out of a moral thing and putting it into an aesthetic thing okay, you want to wear lipsticks or, or I got Invisalign or I want to mm -hmm. wear like a mm -hmm. fancy clothes or something like, so like, what's the difference here? I don't, I don't, I don't see it, but some people very much do. And that's okay. Yeah, it is. It's okay. Some people are Democrats. Some people are Republicans. It's good. It's okay. The world <laughs> needs variety, but it is nice to think about plastic surgery. And I, I still want to say the take home message is that it, it's more than just Right. You know, it is. For the patients that do it, it's definitely more than just that. Absolutely. Dr. Chang, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what would they do? Well, I have an Instagram. Um, I don't want to be promotional, but that's probably the Yeah, go ahead. Way. Go for people, it. That's yeah, why we're people here. People DM me. So I have Carolyn. I have two. One is mm -hmm. pictures of my kids and it's that. So that the, the doctor one is Carolyn Chang, M-D. C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-M-D. And that has all the information. I have a website www.drcarolynchang.com. So those are the easiest. Super. We'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I feel that was a bit of an interrogation. I didn't mean for it to sound that way, but you, you were great. Thank you. I really enjoy speaking to you and I hope <laughs> to do again soon. Yeah. Maybe do my next sometime. No problem. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye, Dr. Chang. Bye. Thank you. Oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> right after that conversation, I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, well, if I went to see Dr. Chang to do something, what would I have her do? And I, well, I have these like bags under my eyes and they sort of bug me, but I wear glasses so people don't really see them. And my neck, well, yeah, you know, sort of bugs me, but I'm not sure what I would do about that. And I just sort of came to the point of like, you know, I'm kind of okay the way I am. I'm kind of okay with it for today. But, you know, have an open mind. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe next year my neck really will bug me. <laughs> Give Dr. Chang a ring. Um, we're going to get with Just Try This after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. I'm a big believer in getting blood tests taken because it's simply the only way to get in-depth data about your metabolic factors, your hormones, and the things that inform your immediate and long-term health. There are also excellent DNA tests that can further inform you about your immediate and long-term health. The problem is the most blood tests out there is you get a lot of information back and you get a lot of numbers and they're not really going to tell you what to do about it. In addition, they can be very confusing what all the factors are, what they mean. Inside Tracker has a dashboard and a platform that simplifies all of that. I get food first, supplements second, recommendations about how to optimize my inner health. For instance, I just got my test back and I saw that my calcium levels were a little low, which were surprising to me. 
But I have suggestions now about how to correct that. And I would not have known that had I not done an Inside Tracker blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products today. This week on Just Try This, my tip is noticing things that I think a lot of us, myself included, we're just like in our heads all the time. We're dwelling on the past or projecting into the future or we're just not very present. And one of the things that I learned from some of the Buddhist folks that I listen to occasionally is this idea of noticing things and paying attention to your surroundings. And it's, it's as simple as you, you walk into a room and what are the wall colors? What's the wall surface? What colors the carpet? How's the carpet feel? You know, whatever. What does the floor feel under your feet? This idea of just taking a second, you enter a new environment and just take one deep breath and just notice like we're, we're, we're these sensory beings, right? We have eyes, we have ears, we have all this touch centers around our bodies and we just don't use them because we're so often locked in our heads thinking about some bad thing in the past or fearful of the future or just get present just for that, like a couple of breaths. And then whoever you're there to meet, whoever you talk to, you're going to be able to be much more present for them too. So today's tip, notice things. Where are you? How's it feel? Thanks for listening to the show today. I know this one was perhaps a little controversial for some people, and I would love to hear what you guys think on this topic. Email me, david at superage.com. Are there plastic surgery things you're thinking about? Does this horrify you? Do you feel neutral about it? Where do you stand on this? I think it's just so interesting. And if, if you send me some comments, we have a few. We'll bring them on the show next week. And if you have a moment right now, you can help us out. Go to wherever you're listening to this show and leave us a comment. And maybe leave us a rating. Super easy. Just hit five stars. We would love that. And what would really make our day is if you share this program with someone you know. I know this one in particular, it's thought-provoking. And maybe there's somebody out there that you think could use this. Until next week, everyone, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you then. Take care now.